welcome to this special episode of The Third Wheel, our podcast series on all things ESG in Australia. I'm Mel Debenham, um, a partner in Perth with um, a practice covering environment planning, land access, and I'm joined by Tim Stutt, who is our um, head office advisory and ESG um, expert at HSF. So, Tim, it has been quite some time since we have shared the third wheel space together. I've missed you. <laughs> I've missed you too. <laughs> but it's because um, it's because we've been squirrelling away at something very, very big and important um, and that has, has taken quite a lot of deep thinking to pull together. So... Um, Drum roll, please. Uh, Tim, do you want to let us know what we've been working on? Sure thing, Mel. So we have been working on a report around unlocking ESG investment in Australia. It occurred to us in the context of the change in government and a lot of the focus on energy transition, also um, some of the investment flows with private capital uh, and, and some of the commitments being made, both from a, a lender perspective, but also an equity investor perspective in relation to different ESG uh, initiatives, that there is a lot of pent up desire for ESG aligned investment. And what we mean by investment in that context is Traditional financial investment, sure, but also across M&A, CapEx as well. Um, we're seeing a lot of our clients very focused on achieving ESG targets and ambitions, but in some cases struggling to deploy the capital needed to make those transformations with their businesses. So our, our focus over the last little while has been diving into that specific issue and trying to get a better read on what are some of the blockers that clients are facing, but also what are some of the things which might facilitate greater levels of ESG investment? Yeah, and it was a really interesting question to ask um, because I, I think it's not necessarily the first question that comes to mind to ask your lawyers, you know, what, what might the key to unlocking investment be? Um, but what was really interesting in working on this report is sort of thinking about all of those things that we advise on or we observe in the market regularly um, and, and making sense of what that means in terms of the risk profile for um, investment into ESG and decarbonisation strategies and, and that kind of thing, but also, you know, where the sweet spots might be either now or um, with the benefit of a little bit of regulatory change. Um, so it was a it was, from my perspective, a really interesting piece of work to be involved in because it kind of takes us out of the normal conversation that we're having. And it, it was interesting as well in that we had a lot of client input into the report. So right. the, back, the, the backbone of the report was really um, a survey that we did of 100 business leaders from across our client base. We sort of, we were quite judicious with our methodology, trying not to pick more than say a couple of people from each company. So we got a good spread across different sectors. And some of the people contributing was, were directors, CEOs, C-suite, um, C-suite type people, GCs, head ofs, uh, chief sustainability officers. And, and we sort of took their, their data on 
what issues are they facing in making ESG investments, and then supplemented it with some client interviews um, where we dove into specific topics, trying to un unearth a bit more a bit more granular detail on some of the thornier aspects. Yeah, and the the statistics, or well, we've we've got some great stats that have come out of that. Um, a lot of things that were really interesting to me um, from a top survey stat perspective. 88% of people who responded to the survey consider ESG outcomes to be important to investment condition, um, decisions. And I don't think that there's any surprises there in 2022 um, to have that sort of response. But 55% went a little further um, and, and thought that ESG is very important or critical to investment decisions. And I think that's an interesting trend. Um, and I would expect to see that number rising over the next couple of years. Um, Almost half of those surveys reported abandoning or delaying ESG-related investment proposals in the past two years due to barriers. Um, and I think, again, thinking about lots of the things in Australia which, which we've reflected on and are in the report, um, which are sort of those unique barriers from a regulatory perspective and um, some of the uncertainty because of the uh, the legislative landscape and how that potentially will change with um, changing government. Um, it, I, I found that quite an interesting statistic. Um, and, um, you know, the missed opportunity, I guess, of perhaps um, things that were good ideas, but there just wasn't the level of um, certainty from a business perspective to take them forward at this point in time, but hopefully not a lost opportunity over the longer term. I think that statistic was something which was sort of confirmatory, perhaps, mm. of different discussions that we'd had. Um, I don't know why I was surprised when the data coming back was exactly what I thought it might be, but it, it was very uh, confirming of the view that we'd sort of, that we'd formed that there is a lot of appetite to make these sorts of transformations, but actually there are things which are holding back companies from actually achieving on them. Yeah. In in terms of some of the um the other data which came out, uh, which was quite interesting as well, there was some some interesting observations around integration of ESG considerations into investment proposals. So about two-thirds of respondents say that uh, ESG forms part of their due diligence processes explicitly already, which is is a, a good yeah, it's quite high. It's a good proportion. It's certainly, um, we're certainly having a lot of discussions with different clients around ESG due diligence and which issues they might be able to diligence and how that diligence might look and how it might vary from sector to sector. So we, we knew that there were um, a lot of people thinking about that, but the fact that two thirds are expressly incorporating this into their due diligence processes in a sort of formalised way was interesting. On the flip side, less than 5% are relying on external ratings agencies for the purposes of, of um, calculating or assessing the ESG benefits of an investment, which mm. was quite low and I think sort of perhaps goes to um, some of the critiques that have been out there in the market around um, the depth of analysis sitting behind some of the benchmarks and ratings. Um, you know, 
it is horses for courses and the uses to which you apply them, you know, in some contexts they may be really helpful and in other contexts actually um, they may be too high level and I think the survey data sort of suggests that actually a, lo a lot of clients are finding them too high level for the purposes of specific investment decisions. Yeah and I, and I guess you know what those the need for decision making to be quite broad and nuanced and tailored to the particular setting as well which I guess with some of these um, broader based um, ratings tools they just don't have the inputs to allow that kind of level of um, granular analysis. In terms of the barriers for ESG investment, picking out some of the specific ones, um, Mel, you mentioned uncertainty, which I mm -hmm. think was a, a key flavour coming through a lot of this. In terms of unpacking that, um, some of the specific areas were legal issues, tax issues, tenure of investment, access to capital, enabling infrastructure, lack of agreed strategy. Um, I don't think any of those were huge surprises. I, I um, guess for me one that was um, particularly interesting um, being a bit of a governance nerd was the tenure of investment one because I think that really does speak to companies struggling a little bit with trying to fit ESG aligned investment into a traditional investment proposal format or investment decision kind of framework you know where the immediate outflows are distinct, quantifiable, known and significant, whereas the actual longer term benefits may be a lot a lot less certain, difficult to quantify, may speak to issues of lowering risk or reputation, um, not lowering reputation, improving reputation, but lowering mm -hmm. reputational risk. Um, so I thought that was interesting too. Um, we wanted to give you a taste of what is in the Unlocking ESG Investment in Australia report, um, but what Tim and I are planning to do over um, a couple of episodes of the podcast is to dive into some of the detail um, and bring into our conversation in this forum um, some of those who contributed to the report. So um, we'll be looking um, hopefully in our next episode um, a little bit um, in a bit more detail um, around the social dimension, um, but also hopefully covering technology, um, the sort of level of investment that we're seeing and perhaps some wrap-ups on, on what we see the keys to unlocking um, ESG investment may be. We usually end these, um, these podcasts with a bit of a fun fact uh, from the world of ESG, but actually in lieu of that this time, we wanted to settle some debts uh, which yes. are owed to our contributors to to this report. We had uh, some great input from from different uh, different contributors, and we wanted to expressly thank them for their generous their their generous time helping us uh, get into some of the granular detail and add a richness to the report as well. So in that vein, I would like to thank uh, and it's a little bit of a list, so bear with me, but. Kirsten Gray from Treasury Wine Estates, Mike Ferraro from Illumina, Scott Richards from EVT Group. Mel, do you want to do the next the next few? 
Yeah, um, Dr. Cameron Kelly from ARENA, Dr. Chris Gregg, uh, who is a senior research scientist at Princeton, um, and Kate Glazebrook, uh, who is from Blackbird Venture Capital. And a final thank you to Catherine Pacey, our environment partner based up in Brisbane, who, who came up with the grand idea for the report as well. Uh, I think she was very pleased to see it through to fruition. Uh, so thanks for the good idea. And, and there's, a, there's a cast, um, not quite of thousands, um, but of tens um, of partners, associates and, and other people within Herbert Smith Freehills who participated and contributed um, to the report. So thanks also to um, everyone who's played a part in getting it published. Um, and if you are interested in reading the report, I would really encourage you to take a look, look it, is a, it is a great piece of um, thinking. Um, you'll be able to find the link on our website and we'll also include a link in the notes to this episode. Thanks very much all. And we look forward to sharing some of the insights from the report with you over the coming weeks. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.